the centrality of the Christian faith is not the crucifixion, but rather the resurrection. For without the resurrection, Christ has not risen and we still remain in our sins. This is the fifth and final sermon in a five-part mini-series tracing the passion of the Lord Christ and his victory over sin, death, and the entire secular realm of men and nations. Our old covenant reading coming from the Psalms, Psalm 118, Psalm 118, the entirety of the text. By the inspiration of God, the psalmist writes, Well, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, because his mercy endureth forever. Let Israel now say that his mercy endureth forever. Let the house of Aaron now say that his mercy endureth forever. Let them that now fear the Lord say that his mercy endureth forever. I called upon the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do unto me? The Lord taketh my part with them that help me. Therefore shall I see my desire upon them that hate me. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. All nations compassed me about but in the name of the Lord will I destroy them. They compass me about, yea, they compass me about, but in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. They compass me about like bees. They are quenched as the fire of thorns, for in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. That was thrust sore at me that I might fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and song and has become my salvation. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tabernacles of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord doeth valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord doeth valiantly. I shall not die but live and declare the works of the Lord. The Lord had chastened me sore, but he hath not given me over unto death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go into them and I will praise the Lord. This gate of the Lord, into which the righteous shall enter. I will praise thee, for thou hast heard me, and art become my salvation. The stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee. Send now prosperity. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. God is the Lord, which hath showed us light. Bind the sacrifice with corns, even unto the horns of the altar. Thou art my God, and I will praise thee. Thou art my God, I will extol thee. O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Paul writing to the church at Rome, Romans in chapter 1, the first seven verses. The same spirit that moved the psalmist, Psalm 118, the Halil. So does the apostle write. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he hath promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, 
by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Throughout history, Christianity had to go through a series of changes. They had to undergo a series of changes throughout their history. Perhaps a better word for this rather than changes would be an augmentation, a reformation, if you will. One might refer to this as a clarification. The reformers looked at this as a reformation of things. In fact, the reformers coined a Latin phrase to explain this phenomenon, Ecclesia Simpler Reformanda Est. The Reformed Church is always reforming. Understanding that knowledge was given to them according to the will of God, they knew that they would have to learn and learn and learn, and they would have to reform some things they were thinking and change, but they were always using the Word of God. Now this phrase, the Reformed Church is always reforming, emphasized that the Reformation was not the last word on Scripture, but to bow to the Word of God whenever and wherever men or their doctrines were in error or had to be refined. So after Christianity's introduction into the first century, the apostles sought to maintain its purity, but quickly discovered that heresies had already infiltrated the church. Heresies already had begun to attack the veracity of Scripture, even questioning the Scriptures. And this resulted in a shift from just simply declaring the Word of God to a a theological defense of the Word of God and a theological defense to the person and work of Jesus Christ. During the 2nd and 3rd centuries, Christianity came under persecution from the state, which once again forced Christianity to take another approach to the fulfillment of its commission. And by the 4th century, around 315 AD, Christianity finally found itself in another situation, which required a change, because that was when Constantine comes on the scene. And with the Edict of Toleration by that Emperor Constantine, Christianity was no longer a persecuted religion. It was now not only tolerated, but it became the accepted religion, actually an accepted national religion, of Constantine's entire empire, Constantine's entire national order. Christianity, by that time, shifted from hiding its doctrine to openly being allowed to declare its doctrine empire-wide. But there was still another shift to be made, Christianity then shifted at that time from being a purely apologetical declaration, an evangelical declaration, to a doctrinal declaration. In other words, instead of just focusing on defending the truth apologetically, the theologians began to focus upon a deeper study of the things of God a deeper study of the truth. It wasn't enough just to say Jesus died and rose again. It wasn't just purely evangelical. Now it was more studious, more doctrinal. If the knowledge of Scripture and the truth of God could better be understood, then they believed that their evangelical thrust might be better received and their apologetics would be more cutting. And so Christianity saw the need for a change, another change, another shift, another reformation. Not so much in doctrine, but in tactics. 
The one constant truth throughout the early church was the doctrine of the resurrection. This was and still is the hub of Christianity's belief structure. The gospel of Christendom focused upon the incarnation of the Son of God, the validity that he was the promised Messiah, the performing of his miracles, his crucifixion, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And coupled with all of this was the doctrine of the atonement, focusing upon the propitiation through Christ for the sins of his people. These are all the truths of Christendom. Christianity focused on all of these things. It looked at all of these things. These are the things that undergirded the message that the kingdom of God had come. But the centrality of Christendom, the centrality of Christianity, the centrality of the Christian message was none of these things other than the resurrection of Christ from the dead. That was the central message. Everything else was important. But the central message, the centrality of Christendom, was upon the resurrection. It was the centrality of the resurrection which the early church focused upon, not the crucifixion nor the atonement. Now today's modern church has once again shifted, but not out of a need to defend or advance the gospel, but rather the shift has become one toward diminishing of the centrality of the gospel. Somewhere along the way, the church departed from the centrality of the resurrection and began to focus upon the crucifixion and the atonement as a central theme of the gospel message. Now, of course, on Easter Sunday, everyone goes to church. And everyone praises the resurrection. But the centrality of the message has shifted from the resurrection to the atonement, to the crucifixion, the working of the Spirit, the blessing of... Christ's mercy upon each and every individual, not so much the resurrection. And that was a dramatic shift from what the early church had taught. The early church had focused upon the resurrected Christ. The Reverend Andrew Sandlin explains it this way and why this is. He says, most of today's Christians understand how Christ's death is essential to the Christian message. Why is this? Mostly because this aspect of salvation has been strongly emphasized in the church for about the last 1,000 years, while the resurrection has been underemphasized. Now, for the early church, the resurrection was the most important event in human history. And while the incarnation, life, death, crucifixion, and the atonement are essential components of the gospel, it is the resurrection which is the key. It's the key to the kingdom of God and the message of the scriptures. Christianity stands or falls on the truth and the reality of the resurrection. As theologian John Frame observes, he says, the early church not only celebrated Easter, but celebrated the resurrection every week as they worshipped on the first day rather than on the seventh because the resurrection means victory for God's kingdom earthly dominion for Jesus' people and a future-oriented cultural outlook. To believe in the resurrection is to recognize by word and life that Christ is not only Savior, but Lord, and that He rules all things in heaven and in earth. He is sovereign, not only over human salvation from hell, but over all of history and over all the affairs of the world." End quote. Notice the comprehensive nature of the victory of Christ. So whenever the crucifixion or the atonement becomes the focal point of the Christian message, it becomes a gospel of individualism, a me and my Bible gospel, 
a gospel of pietism, of devotionalism, to the point of sometimes becoming narcissistic. Jesus died for me. Jesus died for me. Oh, look how Jesus died for me. Look how Jesus died for me. So whenever we focus upon the crucifixion and the atonement as the centrality of the message of Christianity, it becomes, or it could become, very likely it will become, a gospel of meism. It becomes a gospel of personal salvation only and not a gospel of Christ's sovereignty or of kingdom conquest. If the crucifixion and the atonement power were central to the early church, they would have worshipped on Friday. They would have commemorated the day of the crucifixion. That would have been their focus since it was on Friday that the Lord was crucified. But that's not what they did. That's not what they focused upon. They focused upon the first day of the week, the Sunday, which was the day of the resurrection of the Lord, the day of resurrection. That was the focal point of their faith. Sandlin again comments, he says, It should not surprise us, therefore, that we believers, following the early Christians, meet to worship the Lord on Sunday, the first day of the week, not on Friday, which is traditionally believed to be the day of Christ's death. Why not meet every Friday in celebration of Christ's death? Christ's death is a crucial part of the gospel message and there can be absolutely no salvation without it. So why the somewhat greater emphasis on the resurrection in the early Christian community? There's a simple but powerful answer to that. For the early Christians, Christ's resurrection was the culmination of his great redemptive work accomplished on earth. End quote. So while the atonement justifies the sinners before God, the resurrection empowers them. The resurrection empowers the saints of God so that they would become conquering saints, so that they might declare the kingdom in an effort to reorient the culture Godward. By the power of God, the resurrected soul becomes fit for the mortification of sin and the obedience of faith. The resurrection power of regeneration then qualifies the saint for the work of Christian evangelism and reconstruction. But without the resurrection, none of this could happen. There could be no empowerment. As Dan Garlington states in his work on justification and perseverance, he says this, quote, Now justification by Christ's blood is a great thing. And yet, there is something that from a certain point of view, is greater, and that is the completion of the work. When Paul refers to the life of Christ, he means, of course, the resurrected Christ. Jorgen Moltmann, in his book, The Future of Creation, observes this, quote, God did not deliver Christ up merely for our sins. Christ is not only the author of faith, but through and beyond faith, the author of life from the dead as well. He was in general not merely raised for our sakes, he was raised for the sake of the new creation of the world and the universal lordship of Christ. Think about how grand that is other than he just died for my sins. And that was what the Apostle Paul's intention was when he wrote in Romans chapter 14, verse 8 and 9, For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live therefore or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Paul is simply reiterating what Peter told the people in his Pentecost sermon of Acts chapter 2. Notice Acts 2.29 and following. On the day of the empowerment of the people. Now notice, Pentecost, the day when the power of God was absolutely and undeniably manifested, After that 40 days, 
after that, 10 days after the coronation, 50 days later, the empowerment comes on the Feast of Pentecost. Peter stands up before the men, the people of Israel, and he says this, Men and brethren, let me speak freely unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. Notice his focus. The resurrected Christ to sit on the throne. A kingdom focus. A resurrection focus. He continues in verse 31. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was left not in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, notice that phrase, being at the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he had shed forth this which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Christ is seated at the right hand of God and he will not leave that throne of glory until he makes his foes his footstool. That was the mission. Inaugurated in power at Pentecost, that was the mission. To make his foes his footstool. Not to make his foes his footstool and then lose his foes because they were more powerful than he know. To make his foes his footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God had made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Why would he say that? What was that meaning? What what difference that he made him both Lord and Christ? Kyrios and the Anointed One. Because he's borrowing from Psalm 2. Peter is declaring, borrowing from Psalm 2, Peter is declaring that this is the prophet, God himself, that came to deliver the world. John concurs with Peter and Paul. Notice what he says in Revelation chapter 19, verse 15. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. This is taken directly from Psalm 2, which was a prophesy of what would happen when Christ came. Not when he came the second time, or the final time, but when he came in the first time. Out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, that he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords, over king of all the kings and overlord of all the lords. This is not a title of someone that's going to lose at the end. This is a title which means victory. It absolutely confers victory upon this man with this title. He has upon his thigh so that his loins, his thigh, that's where they used to swear, they used to put the hand under the thigh for the generations to come that even he through his church and by his church and alongside of his church will be victorious. The centrality of Christ's resurrection is also evident in the great commission of Matthew 28. Upon Christ's resurrection, he declares his universal authority and power as the king of nations. Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power 
is given unto me. Notice, not some power, not temporary power. You know, if we're going to be accurate with some of the doctrines that are out there, it would be, all power is given to me for a time, but I need to come back, so you've got to wait for me. Just don't be discouraged, have some hope. All power is given unto me everywhere, in heaven and in earth. And when you get that phrase, in heaven and in earth, what would you think about? Lord, teach us to pray. Thy kingdom come in earth, on the earth, as it is modeled in heaven. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. So the resurrection activates the work of salvation in the elect. As Sandlin states, quote, there can be no salvation without the resurrection because the crucified and risen Lord is not an idea but a reality and a power that is not of this world and which cannot be driven from this world by any power of man or subtlety of the devil. Now I want to repeat that which cannot be driven from this world by any power of man or subtlety of the devil. Christ's entrance into history and his victory over sin and death, as proven by his resurrection, is the reason why we have the scriptures. In other words, history comes before the Holy Scriptures, since the Holy Scriptures are the testimony of God's providential history, or what many refer to as redemptive history. Once again, Dr. Sandlin explains, he says, quote, We do not have Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension as Christian doctrines because of the Bible. We have the Bible because of Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension. History comes first. Christian belief is possible because of Christian history. That is, God's great redemptive work in history and the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, end quote. In other words, history is the outcome of Christ's resurrection. The resurrection of the Lord Christ gives meaning to history. You know, when you, when you go to government schools, even those who teach history believe that history really is not very important because it really doesn't mean anything at the end. It's just a, a sequence of dates and events and these things and that things. No, no, no. The resurrection of Christ gives meaning to history. And it gives hope for the inhabitants of the world, including all of its human institutions and cultural structure. The resurrection is the fundamental and most essential component of redemption history because it is the power of God which initiates and solidifies Christ's lordship, rule, and regal authority. The resurrection resulted in Christ's enthronement as the king and lord over the entire universe. His enthronement. So when you read the Psalms, you read what we call the enthronement Psalms. You get a picture of exactly what was going to happen when Christ finally comes on the scene of history. They're not talking about the end of the world. They're not talking about our future. They're talking about their future. The future that we are living in today. Consider Paul's argument. Paul, the servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. Now notice we have a parenthesis. Whenever in the scripture you see a parenthesis, it means pay attention. Not that you shouldn't pay attention to all the scripture, but it means here's something I want to highlight. Which he had promised afore by his prophets in the holy scriptures. Concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, everything in that Old Testament was concerning the coming of the son Jesus Christ and his work on the cross and his victorious resurrection. 
concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. He was empowered by the resurrection and empowering by the resurrection. In verse 16 of that same chapter, which is a continuation of Paul's thought and doctrine, he compares the power of God by the resurrection with the power of God by the gospel, making them one in the same thing. Notice what he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation, or it is the power to declare the resurrection to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He repeats this in 2 Corinthians 13.4. For though he was crucified through weakness, yet he liveth by the power of God. There it is again, the power of God. How dare the church diminish the power of God to say that the power of God is temporal, it's temporary, and it will be frustrated and thwarted by puny men. It is the power of God for we also are weak in Him, but we shall live with Him by the power of God toward you. So Paul is saying that the power of the gospel is the declaration of the historical reality of the resurrected Christ. Once again, making the resurrection the central aspect of Christianity and the hope of eternal life. Paul is careful to make this point in one way or another when he writes in his epistles to the church at Colossae. Notice what he says in Colossians 3.1. If ye be then risen with Christ... Notice he's pointing to the resurrection. Seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. He couples resurrection power, or the resurrection itself, with the ascension of Christ, with the coronation of Christ, with the ruling of Christ. To the church at Philippi, and we've read this a thousand times, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man he humbled himself and became obedient unto death even the death of the cross. And then they stop. They say, oh, look at this. Poor Jesus humbled himself for us. They stop there. You can't stop there. You have to read verse 9 and following. Wherefore, in light of that, wherefore God also had highly exalted him and given him a name and authority. Whenever you read the word name, it means authority. You go in the name of the king, you go in the name of the princes, you go in the name, you go in the authority. And given him an authority, which is above every authority, that at the name, that at the authority of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But that's only temporary until men get the ascendancy and Christ has to come again to fix it all. This is diminishing the resurrection power. It's diminishing the exalted Christ. It's diminishing the reality of the hope that the scriptures are so clear to declare unto the church. Notice what he says to the Ephesian in his epistles. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this world but also in that which is to come and hath put all things and sometimes when I read these passages 
How many things? All things. How many? All things. And hath put all things under his feet, making them a footstool, and gave him to be the head over all to the church, for the sake and the benefit of the church. So the Apostle Paul, along with the early church, saw the resurrection as the key, not only to salvation, but to history itself. And it was this historical event, which was not simply a theological discussion. You know, some people talk about the resurrection from a theological standpoint. It's more than that. It's not an idea to be discussed. It's a power to be experienced. It's a power which changes the minds of men, their actions, their focus, their life's agenda. It is not to be a theological discussion, but rather a historical event which made Christianity distinct from all other religions, changing the course of human events and the destiny of the entire global order. As Andrew Sandlin so rightly asserts, Jesus Christ's resurrection and his ensuing royal enthronement decimates all claims of religious and other relativistic pluralism. It boldly utters, there is one God who has manifested himself and his eternal co-equal son, the person of Jesus Christ, who substituted himself for man's sins on the cross, rose victoriously from the grave, and is presently ruling and reigning over the universe. Man's only hope in his individual life, his family life, his work, his politics, and in the wider society is the submission of Christ as Lord. The future hope of mankind rests upon the resurrection of Christ. Consider now for a moment the centrality of the resurrection and the eschatological doctrine of postmillennialism. Postmillennialism means that Christ is victorious now and he will deliver up the kingdom fully without molestation to the Father without any kind of second coming or final coming. From the moment of the creation account, when God uttered, let there be light, Victory over the doctors of sin and its effects on the culture became the theme. That is how the Bible begins. And we know the connection between Genesis and the events of Christ. Christ, the light of the world, anticipated at that very moment when Jesus met the men on the road to Emmaus. He told them that from the very beginning of Genesis chapter 1, he was anticipated. According to Moses, the anticipation was very specific. Within the confines of the historical account of creation, God anticipates the resurrection by focusing upon the light which shines in the darkness. And from the very beginning of Genesis, anticipated man's fall by providing a way of escape from his righteous judgment through the promised Messiah. From that very moment of creation, when the earth was without form and void, when darkness was covering the face of the deep, without the light of the world, that world would remain in darkness, but God now is teaching that He's going to bring, at one point when Jesus finally comes upon the scene, in history, in time, in that event of His incarnation, and with that victory of the resurrection, He will bring light into that darkness so that we would have a distinction between right and wrong, good and evil, light and darkness. From the very first moment of creation, God was teaching that in order for the global chaos that enveloped the earth to be dispelled, there had to be light, and we are the light of the world. But the church has kept its light under a bushel waiting for the Christ, when the Christ has come. 
It was that light which anticipated the coming of the Messiah and his resurrection from the dead that would discriminate between good and evil, lawlessness and obedience. Now, I often say this, you know, when we're reading the scripture, it's, it's quite odd, but, but God writes things that make us question and ask these things. And sometimes we ask the question, you know, when God created the world, in the beginning God created heaven and the earth, and the next line says, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness enveloped the face of the deep. And what was that all about? Couldn't God have initially made the earth with form? Isn't he God? Did he have to work it out? Was there like an evolutionary process or something? He makes it dark. He makes it chaotic. And if you look at the wording, is it's chaos. Well, of course, he could have done it immediately where it was beautiful, but he didn't. And the reason why he didn't is because he was making a gospel statement that without the light of the world, without the victorious resurrection from the dead, the world would remain void of form, covered in darkness, in chaos. Without the saving work of the victorious resurrected Christ, the human race, the entire social construct is guaranteed to be in darkness, chaos, and the lawlessness that comes from it. And so, from the very beginning of creation, the resurrection power of Jesus Christ is anticipated. The Word of God, written in this declarative propositional fashion and revealed in the writings of the patriarchs, the prophets, and the psalmists, testify of the Word made flesh anticipating the resurrected Christ of God. So Jesus is declaring that he alone has and is given lordship, preeminence, if you will, over the entire created order, and he is shown fully in the holy canon. In other words, he is the object of the holy word of God. He is the object of the Old Testament, and its theme is the fulfillment of God's covenant oath to save a people for himself so that they may go forth to reorient the world Godward by the preaching of the gospel as a result of Christ's resurrection power. So by his atonement, he redeems us. And who are we? A spiritual army. We are the army of God. We share his passion by the power of the resurrection. And by the power of the resurrection, we are commissioned to go into all the world with the testimony of the risen Christ, the sovereign Lord, the rightful king of the universe, the judge of all the earth. And what do you hear today? What do you hear today in, in the churches today? Jesus loves you. My wife loves me. My children love me. What's the difference between Jesus? Well, he's God. Wait a minute. That is not the message of Scripture. The message of the Scripture, the centrality of Scripture, is the resurrected Christ. Does he love us? Yes. Is it the central theme? No. It's the power of God reorienting the world Godward by his risen people. Jesus is telling these men on the road to Emmaus and us and revealing to their hearts that the totality of Scripture is about him, the power of his resurrection light and his subsequent victory. And he begins in Genesis chapter 1. In fact, previously he pointed to the unbelieving Pharisees and he told them, he said, Moses clearly spoke of me. Notice in John 5, 46. For had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. Moses wrote of Christ. The whole Pentateuch is about the Lord Christ. From the very beginning statement of Genesis 1, Christ is revealed. And this is why John launches his epistle with the phrase, in the beginning was the word, forcing us to go back to Genesis where Moses states, in the beginning, God. 
John's intention is to show that from the very start of the Holy Scripture, Christ is anticipated as the creator and restorer of all things by bringing resurrection light into history. And he goes on to say, all things were made by him, verse 3, and without him was not anything made that was made, establishing him as the creator and God of the universe, separating God the creator from man the created. Now if that wasn't enough, he goes on to declare in verse 4 and 5, in him was life, resurrection life. That's what that means. It doesn't mean biological life, although it does imply that. But the real, real focus, the real focus here is spiritual life. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. He's talking about resurrection even here. And the light shineth in darkness because of the resurrection. And the darkness comprehended it not. Couldn't understand the resurrection because it's an experience that only the resurrected can know. This is gospel language coming right out of Genesis chapter 1, anticipating Jesus as the light of the world where he judges between light and darkness, righteousness and lawlessness. Moses tells us in Genesis that there is a distinguishable difference between that which is right and that which is wrong. Right and good as opposed to wrong and evil by using the symbology of light and darkness. And only by rightly understanding God's holy word can we make those distinctions. But then God, and this is critical, He plants a garden east of Eden. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there he put the man, the first Adam, whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life also in the midst of the garden. And the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden. Notice it goes out from Eden before the thorns and the thistles. And from there it was parted and became into four heads. Note. Out of Eden, God waters the rest of the garden. Now, without that water, which is symbolic of a life-giving water to the vegetation of the garden, the garden would be a dry, parched ground, much like the wilderness sojourn of the Israelites in the tempting of Jesus in the wilderness. But God gives it the water of life so that the garden would flourish, anticipating the pouring out of the Holy Spirit because God is likening the Holy Spirit to water, God says of himself, I will pour myself out. I will sprinkle many nations, speaking himself as water. And what did Jesus say to the woman at the well? I will give you the water of life. I will give you that living water. So that the garden would flourish, anticipating that pouring out of the Holy Spirit of Pentecost, when he pours himself out to the nations as a result of the resurrection power. To speak of the coronation as king. So that when we declare the gospel of God, it is as the scripture says, John seven thirty eight. he that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. So that we can water the garden. We can water the world, the word of God. We then see Adam being formed in the garden, the first Adam. His commission, till the ground, steward the earth, subdue and take dominion. Protect it and maintain it for the glory of God. Adam was to be its gardener so that the garden would flourish and fill the earth. Adam would, however, only maintain his commission by obedience. To disobey meant failure, rebellion, violence against the sovereign majesty of God. It meant that if he failed, he would be dispossessed of his Eden inheritance. He would lose the garden of God and be exiled from its beauty. And as we all know, Adam failed. Not only did he fail, but he sought to usurp the throne of God. He sought dominion apart from God's power, just like men do today. 
and to Jesus Christ, the faithful Son of God, the last Adam. He would not fail as Adam did. He would not rebel. He would be obedient. He could not rebel. He could not be disobedient. He was himself the incarnate of God. And so, when Jesus finally resurrects on the third day, as you know, Mary sees him, but recognizes him not, showing her himself as the gardener. He holds back his identity, his true identity. She sees him as the gardener. Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seeketh thou? She's supposing him to be the gardener, pointing us right back to Genesis. As the faithful second and last Adam, by his resurrection victory, by his resurrection power, he accomplishes what Adam refused to accomplish. He restores the hope of the Garden of Eden by inaugurating the kingdom of God as a result of his resurrection. So in anticipation of his glorious resurrection accomplishment that we now enjoy, Isaiah writes this in Isaiah 35, 7. And the parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water. In the habitation of dragons or serpents, where each lay shall be grass with reeds and rushes. Notice, the garden is being repopulated. In Isaiah 41.18, he says, as a result of the resurrection power, notice what he says, and this is a prophecy of what Jesus will do. 900 years before Jesus comes on the scene, Isaiah says, I will open rivers. He goes right back to the garden once again. The four rivers with the four heads watering the world out of Eden. I will open rivers in high places and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. God's promise through Isaiah was to be fulfilled at the coming of the Lord and accomplished by His crucifixion, resurrection, 40-day sojourn, ascension, and the sending of the Spirit. So now the question is this. And this is where the rubber meets the road. Why don't we see the reorientation of the culture Godward in our time and our history? What's going on? If all of this is real, if the resurrection power of Christ is real, what's the problem? Why don't we see a glorious rest? Why does the culture seem to be enveloped in darkness and void of form? Why is the world in a hopeless graveyard spiraled downward and tyranny is ruling? Why are not the enemies of Christ being made as footstool? Why are so many professing Christians confused or depressed or fearful or uncaring or unmotivated Godward? Why are so many Christians worldly seeking to Get as much as the world before they need to check out. And they, they work on their, what's called, their bucket list. Shame! If we are the light of the world as a result of the resurrected light of the world, then can we in right conscience stand by and let the wicked run roughshod over the saints? And I say, absolutely not. This is not the message of the resurrection. Are Christians supposed to be confused? Now, sometimes we're confused about things. It's just part of the Adamic nature, just part of our nature. Are Christians to be hopeless? Not if they're reading Scripture properly. Depressed? Well, sometimes we get down. Yeah, sure, sure. It's all natural because it's part of Adam. Fearful? How many times do we have to read that Christ says, Fear not, fear not, don't be afraid, 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 and then we're afraid. Uncaring? How can a Christian be uncaring? Uncaring for one another? Uncaring for the the blessing of the church? Uncaring for the world at large? How can they be unmotivated? 
Because the resurrection power, if it's truly there, it is a motivating force. It is not to be quenched, although people try. It will not be quenched if it's truly the resurrection power. So how can they be unmotivated Godward? If they've been resurrected with the power of His resurrection, how could they be unmotivated? Again, theologian John Frame observes, he says, to believe in the resurrection is to recognize by word and life that Christ is not only Savior but Lord and that He rules all things in heaven and in earth. This simple fact is what should motivate us. It should comfort us. It should energize us each and every day. Hebrew writer says this, For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come whereof we speak. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? Speaking of Christ, he says this, Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and did set him over the works of thine hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. How many things? All things. For in that he had put all things in subjection under him. Second time he says that. How many things? All things. He left nothing that is not put under him. He makes it a point. All things, nothing that was not put under him. But, now we not yet see all things put under him. That's what we see. We don't see all things put under him. The Hebrew writer understands that, yes, during the first century, we're, we're in pretty dire straits. And yet, all things are under his feet. Nothing has been put under him that wasn't under him. Everything is his. He is the Lord of glory. He is the power. He is the king. But notice what he says. But here's what we do see. We don't see it happening overnight. But here's what we see. We see Jesus. Who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. That's what we see. And by seeing that, we know that He will ultimately be victorious. We don't have to be fearful. We don't have to be unmotivated. We can work knowing that victory is ours. When the Spirit was sent by the Lord God, when He indwelt your heart, He intended to empower each of His people with the wisdom and courage to comfort each other and to confront both the lawlessness of man's rebellion and the inward workings of sin. As cultural gardeners, we subdue the sin in us, we cultivate our own lives according to God, and we cultivate the world around us so as to redeem the social order with the living word of the law of God. The water of the word, the living water of the word, by the power of his resurrection, so that all things might reflect his righteousness, justice, equity, and peace. We are not to shirk back. We are not to be bench warmers. Either the Christian is first string or the Christian is no Christian. Everyone has a task. Everyone who has been empowered by the Spirit has a task. We need to find our task and we need to do it. We need to look to the Lord for that direction. And so, as we contemplate His passion, as we look upon his crucifixion and focus upon his resurrection reality and his resurrection power, 
May he grant to us similar passion, a passion to change what is to what it ought to be. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.